0: Streaming services got you down? Did they remove a TV series while you were in the middle of watching it? Did they delete a film that you previously paid for? Physical media is the answer to these problems and the DISC Connected is your guide. Hi, I'm Ryan Verrill, creator of the DISC Connected, a podcast and YouTube channel dedicated to all things physical media, including 4K UHDs, Blu-rays, DVDs, and even VHS tapes. Each week, the DISC Connected releases an interview with an industry professional like director Sean Baker and host a live show with a guest to highlight all of the boutique physical media releases that were announced in the seven days prior. Following these announcements, the guest and host also discuss a topic in film. Previous topics have ranged from favorite films directed by a specific director to impactful films that are directed by women. You can find The Disconnected on the podcast service of your choice or on YouTube. I hope to see you in the live chat.
1: Back with us is Dr. Astrid Hager, the director of violence intervention program, who created a countywide system for people entering foster care. Dr. Hager, thanks for being back with us.
2: Thanks for having me. It's fun seeing you guys. Um, I was kind of hoping that I was just going to hear you guys and we weren't going to see each other, but I'll, I'll go with the seeing. Um, I actually like the best part, Billy really, Ray. I like to see your dog going back and forth. across <laughs> uh, the train.
0: It is the best
1: part. So I know
2: be we're in the real world here. Yeah, he um, does
1: that a lot. The other one sits quietly like an angel and the other one's like, no, I got world, stuff to do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think this is I think it's always interesting for us to discuss the issues that are pressing on my brain as as a, a bureaucracy or a society thinks they're they're reacting to a, a crisis situation, but they're doing so in a way that uh, challenges us professionals to figure out how to get around them. Uh, because we're really, the ultimate goal here is that we wanna protect kids, but we also wanna protect them in a way that uh, gives them a future. Uh, and I do recognize the fact that foster care is far from what it should be. And taking kids away from their nuclear family is fraught with all kinds of bad outcomes, um, children placed in commercial foster homes that really don't care about whether they're educated, et cetera, et cetera. So there's there's a real, real incentive to not put kids in foster care. Um, I recognize that. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago when I uh, started the hub system, which is a system that was built in reaction to uh, children dying at the hands of caretakers and being seriously abused, and you know, trying to build a system that was open twenty-four hours a day that would give a real answer to the court and a real answer to social services, and um, so we built this system and quickly learned, quickly, uh, almost immediately, recognized the fact that the other, the probably the most important thing we were doing was assessing kids and keeping them out of foster care. So, yeah, there was the, the seriously injured kids that needed to be protected, and then there were those who were overdiagnosed or misdiagnosed or reported because a neighbor hated the family and a whole bunch of stuff going on um, that we needed to do it all correctly. Uh, and, and it went both ways. It went to protection, and it went to keeping kids out of uh, a system that was inherently bad and hasn't gotten much better. So... Um, there are obviously exceptions to this, and I know people are going to react and say, you know, my foster parents were wonderful. Absolutely. There are some of the most amazing human beings as foster parents. And then there are others that see it as a means to pay their mortgage. So let's let's look at it from the standpoint of what's the current trend is in and certainly in LA County and in the state of California. And they have a committee looking at this. And the idea being is let's sustain kids in their home rather than detain them into foster care. And there is uh, a way of doing that. And that was a system that we built 20 years ago, which was, if you think a kid's at risk, there's a law in California that says you have to report, report it, and then come into a center where you have experts and social workers and mental health professionals who are gonna look at everything and decide that if we can sustain the child in the home, that we'll figure out how to do that. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of uh, situations where uh, a, um, a caring community can r- rush in or walk in or saunter in and keep a family uh, uh, intact. And figure out how to help that kid grow. So early on in my career, I was asked to see a family of three children. And, um, and, they, and Department of Children and Family Services was in the process of detaining these children away from the mother and the father. And they were going to put them in foster care. And the, here's, here's the story that went with this case. So, um, and I'm really kind of naive about the system at this point. It was very, very early on in my career. And, and this was a, um, a girl who, at age 18, had fled Arkansas, where she was being sexually abused by her father. And she took every penny she had. She had enough money to get a bus ticket from, uh, from Little Rock to L.A., so she's on a Greyhound bus um, coming. She has no no extra money. She knows she's going to get off the bus in L.A., and then she doesn't know what she's going to do. But she's sitting next to um, a, uh, a a Mexican male who was work going, working the fields. So he was a migrant uh, picker uh, all over uh, the U.S., and he would go where the crops were, et cetera. So he's sitting next to her. And he notices that she doesn't have anything to eat and she's traveling with a small bag. So he shares his lunch with her. Good guy. Nice guy. And when she gets off the bus in L.A., she goes home with him. These three kids are a product of that relationship. He doesn't speak English. She doesn't speak Spanish. A, a side thing on this was that the kids developed their own language. So the kids had a very interesting language because there was no TV in the home, so they weren't hearing uh, English spoken much. Well, the mother having three kids, and now she's like 23 years old, and how did she get to the market with a baby and two toddlers? How do you cross streets? How do you keep kids safe when you got to go get groceries and you have two hands and you have three kids? So what she did is she carefully uh, tied the baby which was like three to four months old uh, in the, or maybe a little older, in the crib by his ankle and uh, with a soft restraint and took the two children that were bigger and walked to the market so she could get food. Well, the baby's screaming in there and the neighbors in, in the downtown LA in the very poor part of town call the police and the police come and they find this, they call social work. They they gather the kids together, and they're going to detain them. What did the mother need from us in order? She loved her kids. What did she need in order to adequately provide for them? She needed a double stroller, right? That was a, maybe a $200 investment on our part, and then pulling her into our ongoing clinic that would follow her, and make sure she was hooked up with two things, with health care and with, uh, with developmental intervention for the kids, and, and with food banks. It was, it was The kids didn't need to go to foster care where the foster parents would never be able to understand them because the kid had, they had their own language. So it was a matter of what was appropriate for that child uh i mean and and it wasn't it wasn't difficult yeah early on in my career i the the courts would send kids to me to be seen who for example uh an eight-year-old um girl who started her uh went through her uh, menses and started her period when she was eight years old she had premature uh, uh menarche and um here she was, and she gets reported because she's got blood in her underwear when she gets to school. Happens to be her birthday. She's detained. Six months later, after her, you know, nobody's touching me. Nobody's touching me. Nobody's happening. Nothing's happening. The judge says, "Go see Hager." She has obviously estrogen effects on her body. She's obviously mature. Nobody really picked up on any of that. She's got a very normal exam for for her kid in her uh, Tanner staging. And she went home. So it became obvious to me that the system wasn't working for in any way, shape, or form, both directions. Underdiagnosis, overdiagnosis, inappropriate responses. Early on when I had my clinic in a trailer, probably 30% of the cases that I was seeing were inappropriate. Um, and um, so we built a system that was appropriate. And with VIP, we did a little extra. We tossed in a nonprofit that would do mental health and would raise money to buy that stroller. Right. Right? So the idea being is that kids needed to have an appropriate response. I mean, you can see that, right?
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. And what's so interesting about that, too, is that when you tell that story about the, the girl from Arkansas, I think a lot of people... If they hear that story, their reaction is immediately going to be, oh, she shouldn't have kids. How dare she tie her baby to a crib and blah, blah, blah. And parenting is not easy, right? Like being a parent is not easy. And a lot of people, like you said, they love their kids. They're doing the best they can. And they're doing the best they can in really bad situations. I feel like we've lost a lot of grace for that in this country. No,
2: we have we have and we've lost you know a lot of a sense that uh, people who are poor don't need us to take their kids away just because they're poor or they're living in a garage what they really need is for somebody to come in and say how can i help you which is our course our motto here uh, what do you need how do i hook you up with services are you getting health services did you get immunized do you guys have enough food i mean we have a food bank here on that goes every friday we have clothing in the basement, we have whatever we think we need, and we have resources where we go and help them. The idea being of creating a stable environment for that child, but not ignoring them. We didn't want her to tie the kid in the crib, No. right? So we weren't going to just say, oh, well, that's neglect. So we're going to look the other way. So the current trend right now, and we can talk a little bit about what we would recommend or like what I would recommend, but You know, let's just see how loud I can yell about this Uh, is the idea being, um, you know what? We are reporting the school system and others that are mandated reporters are reporting too many kids into the social system and people are coming in and meddling with them. And we need to stop doing that. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to say to teachers and others, you don't need to report. You know, we're not asking because neglect is what makes up seventy-five to eighty percent of the calls. So just no, you decide. We know whether they should you should call. So let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. We're gonna have a community response that will support the family so that they can keep their kids. My point is, how do you know the family needs help? If yeah. you aren't asking them to call, I I see the idea of mandated reporting as a means of a family putting their hand up and saying, "I need help."
0: Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so is this tra- is this trend away from mandatory reporting? Your issue with it then is that. You don't have or at least if they're not reporting, there's not going to be a qualified mental health professional or doctor overseeing that child. That's actually the issue. Whereas they might use the stories that you related as a reason to not report. You're saying, no, they need to report and let us review and take a look at what's actually Mm -hmm. going on in the home. So what do you think is driving the desire to get away from mandatory reporting?
2: Well, I think there's. uh I mean, I think that their motives are fine. Their methods stink. Yeah. Okay, the motive is parents should be able to keep their kids. Okay, the method is that they're not giving those families that need the stroller, the equivalent, of uh, putting their hand up and say, oh, for example, I mean, the city attorney came and asked me if I would help them find shoes because they're dealing with truancy in in L.A. and the, and these kids are not going to school because they don't have shoes that, that fit so they can go to school. Well, we should be giving them shoes that fit. We shouldn't be making them stay home and hide or going out and arresting or fining parents for truants, for, for, for not putting their kids in school. We need to say, what can I do to help you so that your kids can go to school? So therefore that reporting does allow us to find families that are difficult to locate or who are in trouble. As you know Eric during the pandemic the social workers in LA County were given permission to not go out and go into homes. Right. So we volunteered to the Department of Children and Family Services that we would field calls if they if they had problems that they needed to address that we would call the families and we would offer the help that they needed like if there's you know a lot of tension and a lot of potential violence because they can't pay their rent or they couldn't pay their utilities then we would step in and help them do that we hooked them up with food resources we had food delivered to their house so it was an effort to make a real response so yeah in
1: terms of the, so the mandatory reporting thing, it's so it's so crazy to me. I mean, because that that's a term that's been with me pretty much my entire life, mm-hmm. and I think it is so important for one specific specific reason. I'm going to speak English right now. So I grew up, you know, I grew up in Alabama in a very rural part of Alabama and a a not very affluent community, um, and we had a lot of kids in my school who were just straight up dirt poor. Like dirt poor, like could not afford food. Sometimes they were on government programs and things like that. Some of them were, some of them were not. And what I realized very early is, is that a lot of communities have such a sense of like pride that they, they just won't ask for help themselves. Right. They're too proud. They're like, I can handle this myself. I don't want to get anybody involved. It's mm-hmm. embarrassing. And so having someone on the outside who can step up and say, these people need help. Like that's so right.
2: important. Otherwise, who's gonna know?
1: Right. Right. And, and, you know, way, and I, yeah, one ahead, of the
2: sorry. things is where where do you feel as a family living in poverty most let's just, you know, where are you feeling the safest? Probably at school. Yeah. Okay, so you go in and you have a teacher and and, um, you know, and the teacher is noticing that these kids are getting skinnier. Their shoes, their toes are coming out of their shoes. Their clothes are dirty um, and, and they don't bring a lunch. I they, mean, you know, they're on a government school. That's fine. They're getting food at school. What's happening to them over the weekends when they don't have access to food at, at school, et cetera? So the teacher calls in a report of uh neglect says i'm worried about this family well if if it is if you've this if i were running if i were running the county (laughs) which of course you know i would relish that um because (laughs) i could then make this decision would be is if i put social workers into the school where they're the most needed. In other words, look at the environment, figure out how many kids in the school are you know, living in poverty, living below the poverty line, having DCFS involvement, getting reported, whatever else is going on. I put a two things in that school, or three things, absolutely. A social worker, a resource coordinator, and a nurse practitioner. Yeah. So you're actually looking at those kids and asking the families, what do you need? And the families know they can walk in the door to the resource coordinator and saying, I'm having a hard time. They can and the community will respond. It will be a community response. It will be appropriate to that community. If it's in the African American community, it's run by African American resources. If it's in the Hispanic community, it's by bilingual resource coordinators. So you really are saying we recognize that a goodly portion of these kids and these families just need our help. They don't need us to interfere. So the reason behind it, uh, this movement to not report, is the idea that they were detaining too many black and brown and and immigrant families. I I don't want to detain them. That's why I would come in in the middle of the night to see them. I didn't want to. I wanted to figure out what i could do or what we could do to keep them together a unique part of what goes on in in la is us that's true and and uh, and, and i'm really a big proponent of that but if you take that away you're never going to find those kids because the teachers saying, and they're saying i don't have to report this this is this is this kids just hungry and dirty maybe we need to put put a washing machine in at school. Well, that's that's certainly an idea, but if you had a center at the elementary school in Los Angeles, El, people are within walking distance of elementary schools. Yeah. So you know you have a bureaucratic space. Put a triple wide in on the on the play yard in the corner, and say we will identify resources. And in South Central, it might be a it might be a church. You yeah. Know, right, it, right. Yeah. I'm just saying is that yeah. instead of saying, this is, we're not going to do this anymore. So, so let me, I'll tell you where I, what I'm hoping we do. Okay? okay. This is my, my, uh, my, my dream thing here. And I'm talking to other advocates within the county. I'm basically saying, oh, l- I hear what you're saying. You don't want to detain kids that are just neglect. It's just, just neglected. Huh? Good for you. I would really l- hope that your number of calls will go up. Yeah. As we respond. And as we look at your community resources and as we build community resources and as we resource map, we hope that your the number of calls will go up, not down right, and that we will build a system that will protect those kids that that you're getting a call. That is my message back to the system, is great, thank you for recognizing that. How about if we hope, encourage teachers to report, not discourage, and that we are responsible enough to build build a system. That's what I think has to happen.
1: Well, I think if I, I think, I mean, that sounds amazing. I also, I wonder though, in terms of priorities, right? So let's talk priorities in terms of like where this falls in terms of the, I guess, the legislators and what they actually care about. Because, I mean, we are kind of living in a world right now where people care more about kids learning about slavery than they do whether or not they're actually getting fed or clothed or anything like that. So I guess what is, what is the, Legislative response to something like this? And do you see, like, how do you feel about the way California is handling that from sort of a legislative angle? Great
0: question, actually.
2: I think that's a good question. I think we have, uh, we have two things going on here. Number one, um, how much money are we, is a child worth? Yeah. What is a child worth? Do we see this that if we save, um, you know, three dozen lives a year in L.A. County. Is it worth the amount of money we invest in appropriate risk, uh, centers? Um, I think the answer from the bureaucracy, sadly, is often the kids are not worth, all, they're not worth all that. You know, I had a boss for a while at health services here who basically said, Astrid, I, I don't care how much it costs. I don't want any dead kids. I want yeah, you yeah. to figure that out, and that that and and we automated all of the records for kids at VIP did, in the county of L.A., t- took eight took my entire penny that I had saved here of trying to raise money, eight hundred thousand dollars at that moment, and we built a system. And what happened is the child death in by hand by caretakers plummeted, because we knew where they were, we knew the reports coming in, et cetera. What about if we did this? I mean, instead of that, so so, what happened? I'll tell you about the government because that was your question. Um, the the backlash against reporting comes from ethnicity, and we're talking about about equity. We're going to be equity. Everything's going to be have be equality. Everybody has the same uh, you know re- response. And and why is it? that African-Americans uh, in terms of their percentages in the population overwhelm the, 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 uh, the foster care system? Why is it that there are more calls about them? Why, why is that? Well, I guess we can look at equity from a little bit different view. Instead of looking at it as, as racial you know, equality, how about if we look at it as economic equality? Yeah. Okay. So we're looking at taking away the fear of no food. We're basically encouraging them to buy better food. We're basically looking at ways to help them with clothes and schools and and mentors and whatever they need. But we are investing in that in a family that is extremely poor Um, and looking at respite care, all of the things that I have for my kids. I'm looking, you know, looking at orthodontia, looking at at, at adequate health care, uh, looking at, you know, all of those things, mental health services, everything that kids should have uh, that I would want them to have and and, uh, and insisting that we invest in, in that part of, of our society. I don't think that we have a society that is willing to sacrifice in order to make the economic barriers go away what would you I, i'm curious too like because i
1: know there is inherently in a lot of these communities there is a kind of a deep distrust of like governmental services and so and things like i'm, I'm and i'm thinking of like the the gabrielle fernandez thing right yeah, we're, yeah, we're sure. like we're like you know and and and, and i and and, I, and I, I use that as an example in terms of like there are a lot of people who don't trust the system because folks like and fall through the cracks right and they don't get the service that they mm-hmm. need what is what is a way to get those folks on board versus having this sort of skepticism and this fear around everything because that's part of it right is changing the hearts and minds and mm-hmm. how do you do that
2: well billy ray there's two questions there yeah uh, which we can talk about. Number one, yes, there is general distrust of the bureaucracy within communities and, and probably a very well-earned distrust because we haven't responded appropriately and haven't included the community in, in making decisions. It's like you don't go build a clinic to identify abuse without yeah. all of the real stats on it that we've talked about as you're looking at it. Well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. No poor, no you know you're looking at that. You don't put a group of white doctors in a black community and say detain black kids. You right. basically go in and say I want people working here that have walked this path and understand what it's like to be a single black mom living in poverty in Compton. That's you know that's that is that, appro- that approach. I mean, etc. Then actually, when you build that response, and let's talk about Gabriel Fernandez. When you build a response and says, hey, we're going to be here for you, if you have social workers, teachers, whatever, if you have a question, just get the kid to this to our center, and we will deal with resources, with medical assessments, with mental health assessments, and we will take responsibility for reacting. In Gabriel Fernandez's case, um, you know, I somebody asked me one time, uh, like who was responsible for Gabriel's death? I said I was, and they said why is, Why are you responsible? And I said, Well, we had a huge lawsuit twenty years ago called KDA KDA suit, in which uh, the state the, they had to come in and build a system uh, of caring for these for kids going into foster care. That was exactly when we built this hub system here, where we did twenty four seven, etc. So I so I said. They use me and our program here as as an answer to that. So I was asked by by the Board of Supervisors to build a program up in High Desert where Gabriel lived, which is an hour and a half away. I traveled up there. I built it. I, you know, you know VIP helped staff it. We gave one of our doctors to go up there and, and deal with it. We were open Monday through Friday. Um, prior to that, I had been driving up there to see kids. We had no deaths. Yeah, and when we had opened this clinic, and I and one of my friends went up there. From, one of my doctors went up there and ran it. We had no deaths.
1: Yeah.
2: So all of a sudden, um, it becomes an economic issue.
1: Yeah. So
2: they take the doctor. The first doctor leaves because they won't pay her to drive up there, and it's an hour and a half. So it's the extra three hours a day, and and that's stupid again, money. Yeah. So they yeah. so they put another doctor up there when they don't have enough kids coming in instead of building a business plan under the clinic i.e let's build a clinic for kids in foster care or high-risk kids it's a health clinic primary care enroll them in our system have the you know the federal government support it medi-cal whatever so that it's viable they basically pull the doctor out of the clinic and sent her to work for the juvenile justice system down the road where they could have more income. So it became a financial decision to close the clinic three out of five days. What happens, Billy Ray, Eric, if somebody in your neighborhood opens a restaurant and you go and use it, then all of a sudden it's closed five out of seven days. You only have two days to go there. You don't go there anymore. There. Yeah, no,
0: it, it, re- it reduces. And, and the, the crazy thing about that is there was need for a clinic like that up in Palmdale. And they, instead of fostering that, instead mm-hmm. of growing that, they actually sort of just, yeah, we put a doctor there, nothing happened, we pulled them out as evidence. Is that correct?
2: Well, like- they they said they had the clinic and they told DCFS and the sheriff we're well, here we are, we did what the board of supervisors asked us to do, because Mike Antonovich was a supervisor then up there, and he basically said, I want you to replicate the VIP in I Desert, which we did, Yeah, but it was not financially a big gunner for them mm-hmm. because they didn't go the extra step, which was to create a, a primary care under it integrated into it so they could not only see the kids and and screen them but follow them so that that's our model and and that yeah. works so so when you close the clinic yeah. three out of five days what happens to the sheriff and to dcfs they say oh well i guess it's not important for me to get the kid there so i'm not going to do that yeah. i and and being told by the bureaucracy. We have provided you with a clinic. you don't need to drive an hour and a half to see Dr. Hager in her cl- in her clinic and her staff down there. You know we, we want to spare you that inconvenience so they they it, they never used that restaurant. They yeah. just didn't they forgot about the hub. they They didn't want the hub because it wasn't open when they needed it. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, no. That's yeah. I, what's crazy to me is like it's all it's always all you ever hear is like oh it's a money thing it we it's not efficient to keep it open or something like that and I'm like it drives me insane when I see a good example you know like we're going through totally unrelated but we're going through an impeachment inquiry right now which is costing thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars that could be going to something mm-hmm. like you know exactly what we're talking about here it could be funding something like that mm-hmm. but we we just we waste so much money on the things that don't matter mm-hmm. and then the things that do matter are just like well we'll figure it out eventually
0: right mm-hmm. it's it's not only a money issue it's also a vision issue right, right. No, the, if you don't have the proper vision to be able to implement the plan you're likely going to just be wasting money i know that we don't you know the, the stuff that we have to do with the agency to keep stuff in line take some vision generally with you there boss that's the focus how do we so mm-hmm. how do we correct what happened in palmdale then well
2: how do we well, let's how do we yeah, correct let's, that? let's let's talk about that for just a second and we'll build something that everybody in this country can identify with when you are in a small community or a moderate-sized community or even a big community you know that you have an emergency room that has the ability to deal with your trauma with your heart attack with you know your appendicitis with your trauma with an automobile accident and everyone has access to that resource it's kind of like communities have police communities have social workers they have healthcare. it's one of the the uh, givens in this country that you are going to be able to go to an ER and be seen if you need care. You, there are laws that prevent doctors from sending people away from, from emergency rooms. They get cited and fined if they don't see families in need. So we've, we've said that is that we say that's important. So is it all of a sudden not important because it's a kid because the kid doesn't have the voice to say, you know, I'm being, you know, my my like in the cases case of Gabriel, my parents are using me for uh, BB gun practice as a target. He doesn't have the chance to give that that history because he never gets to the ER. Yeah. Because the ER is closed, which is you know the clinic in essence is closed. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like. When you build up an expectation that you're going to have an emergency room in a community, the, the community begins to rely on that. Like, I know if I'm injured, I will go there and somebody will take care of me. That is the same mentality we have to have when we're dealing with a very unique, uh, or unique, sorry, very is redundant uh, uh, problem of child abuse. Yeah. I mean, you you have to be able to say well, they're in a small town. There are going to be days when nobody's going to need us in the ER, right? We're going to be here sitting with nothing to do potentially because it's we're in a, a relatively small environment. The same thing with child abuse, you, you have to be there. You yeah. have to have resources. So for high desert, Billy Ray, we built a telemedicine before it's COVID. A yeah. telemedicine system up there where we, who are open 24 hours a day, can be linked to them and the nurses in the urgent care, wherever, could link back to us and say, what do you think of this? Yeah. So it wasn't like we were just isolating them. We were saying, listen, let's all work together as a team. Um, the problem was that we had individuals within the bureaucracy who basically yeah. didn't, who, as they said, I don't have a bleeding heart, didn't think they were that important. Yeah, and
1: I mean, I, I I can't imagine that there are people in the bureaucracy who uh, devalue certain groups of people over others. I can just imagine that there are people mm-hmm. there who exist who do that. It's not a surprise. It's mm-hmm. all over. Um, it's you want.
0: How about I want to say something to that though. You want to know what's terrible? A lot of the time, it's just laziness. That's sure. the the terrible reality is oftentimes some of this comes up against just plain old human laziness, and that's even crazier. But that's exactly what you end up running into, is not only maybe some level of incompetence, but really just no desire to do it at all. And it's kind of, to me, that's always been the crazy thing about the opportunity of providing for these children is, you know, everybody... Generally, if they were to sit back and go, Who am I as a person? They would say, Well, you would you would help a child out, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course I would. And then right, the well, opportunity presents itself and they don't show up.
1: Well, also just thinking in terms of like, and I know this is maybe a little pie in the sky, but I'm thinking about in terms of like as a society, like if you are if you are a government entity, a government agency, a bureaucracy, and you're coming in at an early age and you're helping, you're genuinely helping a family, you're helping kids stay with their families, you're helping the families find ways to make this, make all of this work, maybe you're going to instill in these kids that you're helping the idea that the government isn't evil and out to get you. I mean, just in the general sense, because so many of these kids grow up with such a mm-hmm. distrust and such mm-hmm. a distaste for the government, for government services. And I'm like, if we can nip nip that in the bud at a young age and show them like there are actually good people out there trying to good work and help you, maybe that societally will kind of trickle down because right now everybody distrusts the government. That's what everybody has in common these days, it seems like, is nobody trusts the government or bureaucracy at all.
2: Well, I, and that's what I think we are responsible. I mean, certainly I feel like I'm responsible as a medical doctor that I have to care about every single kid and family that comes in the door. That's my job. So there were many years, uh, you know, in the first decade of building this clinic where there was one nurse practitioner that worked with me and myself and we took shared call every night. And I would come and we. I took four out of seven and then I took three out of seven. She took the others. And because we believed that every kid and every family was important, all right, that they needed a valid diagnosis. You could not take kids away or leave them in a dangerous situation. We decided as medical professionals that they were important. The bureaucracy followed along behind us and basically said, wow, that's amazing that you value these families and these kids because they are poor, they're minority, they're immigrants. We are not sure that we value them. You know, I had a hospital administrator at one point say to me, You know, Astrid, I, I see what you're doing and you're starting this elder abuse program and you're doing all this other stuff with the teens and stuff. I just want you to know that I don't care what you do for black or brown women and children, you know, and that kind of like, whoa, wait a yeah. second here. Um, and I, I think that it's a matter of what we make important. That's, 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 I'm curious kind of on
1: that. Because right now we're dealing with and and I'm not I don't want to get into the political angle of it because there's so many different hot takes. But like, you know, there is regardless of, of how we deal with it, there is a crisis at the border. There is like we have a flood of people coming over more than our infrastructure technically can handle right now. Mm-hmm. How do we knowing that so that the majority of those folks coming over are families, right, our, are, are, mm-hmm. you know, our kids and their families how do we, how do we make sure that those families are also, you know, whether they're here permanently, whether they're here for a little? How do we make sure those families are being taken care of and that their needs mm-hmm. are being addressed? And do we have the infrastructure in place to be able to serve them?
2: Well, oh, the last, the answer to the last question is no, we do not. Uh, yeah. If I could figure out a way um, to deal with two things in our society, one, one is well, obviously poverty is an overarching one, but immigration and housing, uh, the homeless, then I could be president of the United States right now. Um, (laughs) I mean, because obviously nobody is really, there needs to be a concerted effort that really looks at how do we take care of the people that are affected by this, not how do I run for re-election or how do I get donations for my re-election campaign or is it politically correct on the, in in South Texas to talk about immigration across the border. Obviously, if you want to get elected down there, you don't talk about uh, being pro-immigration. I believe that this country can absorb an, a tremendous number of immigrants here, and I think we should be building a system that deals with you know their health, well-being, mental health, where they can you know where the helping them find housing, helping them find jobs, just like I think we should deal with the homeless. Maybe next podcast we'll talk about the ideology of, of homelessness, uh, which is yeah. a big, huge yes. burden, a burden yes. for me, which we ignore, and probably sooner than later talk a little bit about that. But I do think, I mean, I'll, I mean, it is, we live in a society that's driven by money. Yeah. Okay. It is a financial thing. It is—it's um, a glib answer for somebody that's running the system here in county to tell me, "Oh, the homeless people really are so anxious for me to move them into a repurposed uh, motel, okay, or hotel." When when really the people want to stay on the street, let's let's be honest about what what uh, the population looks like. But however, by moving them into reused, you know, refurbished and repurposed, repurposed, that's a better word, yeah. uh, housing. Then there are individuals that are in that business that make a ton of money. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yep. And, yep.
2: Right. So when I say, Oh, I have, look at, I have a guy that, that builds, uh, uh, housing units that I can, that, that Eric and I can put together with an Allen wrench. I'd be happy to do that. I know right. how to use one of those. Uh, and it's, it's waterproof, it's fireproof and they, and it has a porch out in front so they can sleep outside if they want to. And it has a central, you know, uh, place for food and for therapy for education. If you're talking about mothers and kids and the guy will come in and build a factory adjacent to it so that we'll teach the working poor, how to have jobs and build more housing, et cetera. And it's just turned down flat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember we, we put out a whole thing and, uh, Dr. Hager had several people working on this project. And in the end, nobody was interested in some cases they said it appeared to be too inexpensive. So probably wouldn't work. Like there were some really bad takes. Yeah. It was
2: was about how that nobody, I personally, and I'm, I'm now very skeptical about all of this money thing. Um, feeling like they didn't have somebody in their back pocket or, uh, that they played golf with or whatever that was going to yeah. make money off of building yeah. this unit. And yeah. I'm saying, no, 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 Let's build it for the people oh, no. and accept the fact that they'd rather sleep on a porch outside this, this, this cubicle than, uh, then, uh, then be in a motel.
0: Right. Yeah. i right. Billy Ray, I want to say something. There are people now currently under indictment oh, who yeah. actually said no to her. Right, yeah. and so we know there was mess in there, but that's part of the problem: is yeah. the, the not only the bureaucratic mess, but the mess of people that have uh, uh, motives counter to this process.
1: Well, mm-hmm. it's it's I, I I know it's totally that home. I'm not trying to equate homelessness or houselessness with this, but like I think of like prisons, right? Prisons once exist, you know. Prins- prisons as were generally for. Right, You're going to get someone. You're going to rehabilitate them. You're going to introduce them back to the society unless, of course, they've done something so horrible that you think they have to stay there. Now all it's about is making money, right? The prison industrial complex. We -hmm. hear it about it all the time. My thought process is if we can have prisoners – and I'm not saying get rid of this. I think this is great. If you can have prisons where prisoners have jobs and they're contributing and they're – why can't we have that for folks – outside of prison like Mm -hmm. you're talking about like in these communities like why can't we have them doing jobs like that maybe they're not I don't you know just so they're earning something they've got something to look forward to they've got something to do because so much of the houselessness and we won't get into this because that's a whole other episode but like so much of it is just hopelessness right it's just feeling like you don't have any options and there's no hope introduce a little hope there and it might be interesting to see what Mm -hmm. happens
0: right and how about this the intervention at the top by having children handled and cared for now is going yeah. to reduce the problem of homelessness. It's just- uh,
2: very interesting. Since half the people on the street were once foster kids, I think we need to stop and think about what we're actually doing for the kids going into foster care and in foster care that will produce individuals that can find jobs and operate within society. That's a whole nother topic for yeah. a whole nother day. Yeah. But, I mean, it is like... The idea that we can go back to what we started with. How do we make sure kids need to get into foster care? Yeah. Because it's not a good place for them often, most of the time. So we need to stop putting kids in foster care. We need to respond to the needs of the family that are operating in poverty, et cetera, initially. So that's I'm I'm work I'm saying change foster care, and we can talk about that. That is a huge issue for me right now in building a system. Very, very, very dynamically and aggressively involved in that because I see foster care as a means of incarceration. But prior to that is if I don't have to deal with that if we're able to keep half the kids out of foster care by providing the kind of support we need to have for families. That's all I'm saying is that step one yeah. is don't incarcerate them in father foster care. And if you do, then the next, our next, we need to talk at length about the feeder factor for homelessness that comes out of foster care and how do we change foster care in such a way that it's not the feeder factory of the kids going out on the streets. And I think you just described our very next episode, uh,
1: no, the next time we have you on. <laughs> yeah. uh, Absolutely. But that's a great way to bring it full circle though. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Hager for chatting with us.
2: Well, I'm. I am hoping that by being as um, vocal as I can be, by the fact that I have an amazing staff that supports what we believe in here, and that we've made an enormous difference for kids in this county, um, that by just continuing to force that issue, that in fact, maybe we can, t- you know, turn this ocean liner. Of chaos and uh, disregard for kids around. That's that's why I went into medicine. Um, I'm perplexed by um, people who don't care about these kids.
1: Yeah, I am. I, I, share, I share your your perplexity. Is that a word?
2: <laughs> I share
1: I share the perplexity, especially when I see what we're prioritizing. It just right. boggles my mind.
2: You know, I think you guys are doing an amazing job by bringing issues out. And, and I really want to, to let you thank you for that. Uh, thank you for letting me uh, verbalize my my despair. Um, there are moments when I feel less despair and, and now is one of them. So thank you for that.
1: Well, thank thank you, you so, Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to talking next time.
2: All right.